Hey y'all, this is Lauren Akins and welcome to the Live in Love podcast. Each week I get to sit down with my friends and family and talk about all the different areas of our lives where we get to live in love. We've got some behind the scenes things too we're going to get to share with you, things you may not know even if you've read my book Live in Love. And I'm Annie F. Downs, and I'm so excited to be here with Lauren and to get to be a part of this really special show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. If you haven't gotten your copy of Lauren's beautiful book, Live in Love, the paperback edition is new and it's out now. And believe me, you want a copy. You can pick up your paperback copy of Live in Love at your favorite local bookstore or wherever you love to buy books. And Lauren, today we are talking about living in love and adoption. I'm so stoked about this. Who is joining us for this conversation? So today, for our very first episode, we get to sit down with two actual angels on earth. First being my sweet mom, Lisa, and the other being one of my very best friends and mentors, Suzanne Marinick, to talk about what it's like to live in love in adoption. Lauren, Live in Love podcast, episode one. Here we go. Okay, who is here with us? Start there. Okay, so today we have my mom, also known as Lisa. Hello. <laughs> She's here today. And then one of my very best friends and mentors, Suzanne. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk through just life with adoption. I really want mom and Suzanne to kind of share their specific stories on adoption as briefly or not brief as you want. I think it would be really good just to hear y'all's background of why adoption is such a part of your life and anything else you want to say. Cool. Mom, take it away. Okay. So I was adopted basically really, really early on. Like I think um, my parents got me like when I was 17 days old. Wow. Mm -hmm. They couldn't have children, so they wanted to do adoption. And, um, I remember my mom set me down and was telling me, I think I was like seven maybe, and she set me down in her bedroom and I could I could see outside and it was summertime and the pool was out there and she was like, I want to talk to you about you were adopted and you know, she really she had a book on it and wanted to just tell me everything about it. And I kept thinking, I really just want to go out there and go swimming. And yeah. <laughs> and so she just she just wanted, you know, for me to feel what she felt when and and forever how they got me and and the story. And so she was explaining all this to me and I just, you know, I was so comfortable with my pa- my parents were my parents and it just it's just always been for me the most wonderful experience. Because they, I just never, I never thought about maybe where I really came from. And um, a lot of my friends have wanted me to look and find who my biological mother was. And, and I would be interested in doing that probably if my parents had just, you know, I just, it's just such a wonderful experience with my parents. So I knew early on that I was adopted, but it was just a great, great experience. And my mom's still here. My dad's not here anymore, but he died maybe 23 years ago, but just wonderful life and the sweetest parents ever. And, um, the best grandparents ever. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) So it was just, you know, it was for me a wonderful, perfect, perfect experience in life. And I could not have had better parents. So I, of course, am just all in with adoption. And, and I think with 
my kids and Lauren growing up, you know, like they just always knew that I was adopted and, and we talked about it openly. And so I think that was kind of something that was probably planted in her mind and heart a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as she was growing up and I was a social work major. So I was always one of those people that was like all about life and loving everybody, but just love people. And Lauren's the same way. Suzanne's exactly mm-hmm. the same way. And so I think this was all just meant to happen and mm-hmm. everything to come together the way it did. But I just have the most wonderful experience with adoption. Lauren, do you ever wonder about your birth grandmother? I started to when I got older just because of the fact that there was a mom and a dad out there somewhere that made my mom. And I'm curious to know what they're like, because if you meet my mom, she's like, (laughs) we always, me and Suzanne always tell people that anytime we're around dad and mom, constantly dad is like, Lisa, what's it like? Tell us what's it like (laughs) to have your brain just with rainbows and butterflies flying around all day long. Your world is just perfect. He's like, what is it like to be that person? But it's so true. She's just sunshine everywhere she goes. Mm, And so I just really, I think it would be so interesting to see what her biological parents are like. I mean, my grandmother is like one of the most incredible women I've ever met in my life. And like some of her attributes, like we, we've picked up and we've learned from her. And my mom definitely models who she is after my grandmother, who we call Mimi. And I do the same. And I'm very, very close to her and was very close to granddaddy, her husband. But I always wonder like what, what did she get from her biological family? Or, like, does she have siblings? Or, like, do we have cousins out there that, like, if we saw them walking yeah. down the street, we'd be like, whoa, we look a lot alike. You don't have any more um, space on vacation. <laughs> that's, yeah, we, do, we definitely don't. But um, there are things that my grand, like, my grandmother, if you saw her, she's 88. Sorry, Mimi, if you're listening and you didn't want me to say that. But she's, like, the hottest grandmother that ever existed. And my friends are like, my friends are like, dang, y'all got some good genes. And I'm like, nope. We don't get those jeans. <laughs> we didn't get to pick those up. We just get to watch her live them out. But um, yeah, Lisa, it makes me wonder how much of you that Lauren is describing is nature versus nurture. Oh, that would be so interesting. Now, I have, I have wondered that type of thing. Like, I would love to have a piece of paper that said all the different characteristics. Now, I do know, I do know one thing that I think is very interesting. On my adoption papers, it said uh, that my mom had, it said something about her characteristics, my biological mother's characteristics, or what she, her interest. And I like, I love football and I I am so happy being a girl. But if I, if I could play football, like if I were a guy, I would love Uh to play football, love to watch it. And that was one of her things. And I thought back in 67, like, I don't know that a lot of girls would have said they love I football. love football. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of, I think that is interesting. And so, wasn't she shorter and had red hair? They said some, some one of them had red hair. I think mm. she Which I guess have. red hair and like blonde, blonde and fair is not that mm-hmm. far off base. But mm-hmm. shorter mm-hmm. is does not feel like it should ever be in the vocabulary to describe you. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> so tall. That's me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Switched at birth. <laughs> I just think that's fascinating to think. 
uh, all these things that Lauren loves about you and that everyone said. I mean, we ran into the gro- we ran into each other at the right. grocery store yes. a few weeks ago, and I was like, she lights up the grocery store even with a mask on, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? She and does. so, but then if you're saying Mimi's like that too, I think it's such a good reminder that anyone you bring in your family can pick up the traits absolutely mm-hmm. of your family. Yeah, um, Suzanne, tell us who you are. So I'm Suzanne Mernick, and I have adopted. I have four biological and four adopted. I didn't wake up one morning and go, hey, I'm going to have eight kids. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> but what I have learned is that there's God's plan and then there's my plan, and my plan really doesn't count. Mm-hmm. And um, when Mike and I first got married, we did. You know, I'm one of four. He's one of three. And so we thought, well, maybe we'll have three or four children. And when I went from three to four children, I was completely overwhelmed with life, with laundry, with cooking, with nursing, getting some to school, some home, temper tantrums. I mean, I was completely overwhelmed, and I spent a lot of mornings and afternoons just sitting in my kitchen crying mm-hmm. with children all around me. It was very difficult. Um, it, but at that point, I think I really started thinking, I, I cannot do this alone. And so I really started leaning in to just spending time with the Lord and asking Him to give me what I needed for each day. And I continued to read, you know, you only need enough manna for a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, you're not promised tomorrow. We're only promised today. And so I started living my life that way, just, I guess, just in survival mode, actually. And shortly after my fourth child was born, I was sitting in church one day and I heard the Lord say, I have a child for you. And I've never heard the Lord speak to me audibly or anything ever. And I would I would tell you even to this day, I don't feel like I have enough strong enough spiritual walk with the Lord to even hear him audibly. But it was so clear. I heard I have a child for you. And this little boy in church kept turning around and smiling at me. And, You're um, like, am I supposed to take that one? <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, it's, he he's an African American little boy, and he was mm-hmm. sitting on a row with all white people. So I thought, does he need a family? And I got up and I went to the bathroom because I was nauseous. Came wow. back and sat down, heard it again, looked around, like, is anybody else hearing this, or am I losing my freaking mind? <laughs> yeah. And um. Everybody was just paying attention to the sermon. So that afternoon, went home and started talking to Mike. And I said, you're not going to believe what happened to me in church today. Making sandwiches at our island in our kitchen. I start telling him that I start throwing up (laughs) in my my kitchen trash can. Because there was not one part of my being that felt like I was capable of doing one more thing. One more load of laundry. One more dinner. One more bottle. How old were the kids at this time? Um, okay, so Miller Ann had just been born, so she was, I think, maybe one, which means Annabelle was three, and then that would mean Michael is six, and um, Grace was nine, Boy. right? Nine, <laughs> six, three, yes. Okay. And so um, Mike just said, and, and, and in my honest, if I'm going to be honest, I thought, he's the leader of our household. He's going to look at me and say, honey. You cannot take care of the four we have. You call me all the time crying. <laughs> so let's just put it on the back burner. But what he said was, well, if it was that clear to you in church, let's just commit it to prayer and let's link arms and hearts and let's just see what God has. And so that's what we did. And the Lord just really started showing some things to him. He had started reading a book by Bruce Wilkinson called The Dream Giver. Yes. And it's ordinary who lives in the land of familiar. And he keeps trying. He keeps calling him out. 
to go to the promised land, and the border bullies keep standing up telling you can't do that, you can't do that. And then he was listening to a podcast um, on his radio, and it was talking about the plight for African-American men for just the, the Muslim faith. And we started doing some research, and we got a lot of counseling, and we found out that at that time, African-American little boys were the last babies to be adopted. Um, people would adopt, you know, um, significantly special needs or there was, you know, there's years of people waiting for children that look like our children. And for some reason in our culture, the African-American community doesn't typically adopt culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of babies that are being born that need, that are growing up without a father. So we thought, well, okay, we're just going to get our uniform on, but not necessarily jump into the game. Uh, that's you know? a great way to say it, yeah. So we got our home study done, and we just left it there. And three months later, Joshua was in my arms. Met his birth mom. I was actually in the delivery room with him. Oh, wow. And went in talking to his birth mom, found out the very week that I felt the Lord speak to me was the week that she made her adoption plan. And so when we realized that and we connected those dots, she said, I'm going to be honest with you. You are not who I would choose to mother my child. You are white. You already have four children. But just in spending time with you, I know without doubt you're supposed to be his mother. So we brought him home to Brentwood. Um, We realized, wow, like our dentists are white, our doctors are white, our groceries white, our church is white, our school is white. And when I held him in my arms, it's like these blinders were taken off of my eyes of what my day-to-day life looked like. So we just started going, okay, what are we going to do to integrate more color and more diversity in, in every way, just to our family? We'd already started taking our children to other, other countries to serve. Um, we realized pretty early on that it, that was important, and that was the only vacation that we took our children to where they cried when we were leaving because mm-hmm. they wanted to stay in Guatemala at a special needs orphanage. And Mike and I thought, okay, if we can go to the beach and snow skiing or whatever else we're doing, then we can make that time to take our children to serve others. And we really made that a focal point. You know, I would take my girls to the women's mission downtown and we would do jewelry or art Mm -hmm. with them. Or we just really started living a life of giving and serving rather than it being all about us. And we watched our children's hearts be transformed. Mike and I, our hearts were transformed. We just changed everything in our life when we brought Joshua home. And I was completely released from laundry, and I did not feel overwhelmed. I felt joyful because I knew I couldn't do it. I just knew there was was no possible way I could do it all. And so I started relying on him for everything, and I was freed up from just— hard like darkness so joshua got to be about 18 months old and can i ask you a question in that though real quick yes when you say relying on god for everything i mean he god doesn't do your laundry so what does that look like on a tuesday a when practical, you've got all these, practically yeah, yeah. Um, i believe i mean i hear you i believe you we all believe you i just want you to tell us how do we do that if we're sitting at home with five kids and want to hand it to god but the laundry is still the laundry mm-hmm. yes so mike's a financial planner and so we sat down and looked at our budget mm-hmm. and we said, okay, where are ways, where are some areas where we can cut back and save money and put it towards somebody coming to help yes. me with laundry? Great. So we started moving things out that we were spending money on that didn't feed our souls. Yeah. We, we always kept money, enough money in, in our budget for us to have a date night. Mm-hmm. 
it was like, okay, what do we need to focus on that's an important things to keep us going? Mm-hmm. And and as my kids got older, a little bit later, we went back and adjusted the budget again so I could have somebody to come in the afternoons just to help me with my school age to get homework done. Yeah. I could do homework. She could start baths with little ones. Then after homework was done, was done, I could start dinner. She would leave. Homework was done. Baths were given. Dinner was made. And Mike could come in from work, and we could actually have family time together. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that is that's a planning. village. Yeah. But, you, you know, you start. But that's learn- also trust in the Lord. People, yeah. I want people to hear that sometimes trust in the Lord looks like being really practical uh-huh. and believing him. So, right. I think that's really and, and just believing that he's going to bring just the right people to walk through. the. I mean, I look back at the, the girls in college or had, that had just gotten out of college that God brought right at the perfect moment for the stage of life that we were in with the age of my children. And I could not have... I could have searched the whole world and never found those people. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it just his timing is everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then we adopted again two years later because we felt like Joshua really needed someone that looked like him and our family. At that point, our hearts were just open, you know, just to love and care for more children. Because then you started going, okay, we've got this. Like, I, I, I can do the day-to-day. Mike can work and, and bring, you know, help provide for us. We're having time together, and then you're just relying on God, and all, all that heaviness kind of goes away. Mm. Same thing. We finished our home study. Three months later, Caleb was in my arms. Gosh. Oh. Was, and I mean, then <laughs> it was just—but then the older kids started helping with the younger kids, and, you know, I might not be able to, to give somebody a bottle, but Grace could, and if Joshua was really wanting to run out and play, Michael could play with him. So then it didn't rely solely on me. Mm-hmm. They were getting older to where they could help. And they learned early on, we're doing this together. Mm-hmm. It's not, hey, mom, can you do this and that? It's it's teamwork. And how can we pitch in to all help each other? So when you start lear- serving each other in your home, it makes it a lot easier to serve your friends and strangers that you don't know. Ooh. Or that's what I've seen with my children. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of time to argue because you're so busy helping and serving each other. Um, so we haven't had a whole lot of conflict in our home. People ask me all the time, do your children not fight? And they do disagree on occasion, but w- they really don't fight. We all get along and love each other, and it's just sweet. But it's nothing that I've done or Mike that's that we've done. It's other than opening our hands and hearts to what God has and saying yes and when you allow him to move and do his thing and just allow you to be, mm-hmm. then you feel the Holy Spirit in a way that you can never imagine. And once you feel or taste that, you don't ever want to go back to what the world tells you is. Preach, so sister. True. So true. <laughs> so Preach. that's how the two, um, I know I'm going really long. That's how We're the here. first two came. We started living life alongside Katie Davis, who lived in Uganda Mm -hmm. or was living in Uganda. And um, my husband became chairman of her board and actually was for, gosh, 10 years, I think. And I started doing a lot of stuff stateside for Katie while she was in Uganda. Okay. Just living alongside her and seeing her live out just truly by faith, an 18-year-old living in Uganda by herself. We would go and visit her. And spend time with her. And I kind of always joked, I, I really did feel like my family was done 
with six children. But we always joked, oh, well, if we were ever to adopt, you know, again, if it was a little girl, I would want her to have pom-poms, and we would name her Josie Love. <laughs> and we, I loved the name Josie Love. And we went to go visit Katie, and she was taking us to the children's home where she served when she first moved to Uganda. And there was a little girl she absolutely loved that was really sick and um she she would be sick at night and Katie would hear her crying and so she would go down and get her out of her bed and give her bananas or Gatorade or give her Tylenol if she was running a fever and so we went to go meet her and she said her name's Josephine and then out of all the children in the orphanage they shaved all the baby's heads just for hygienic yep. purposes and she was the only one that had long braids and they said that the reason is because the caregivers couldn't they couldn't stand the thought of cutting her hair because it was so beautiful. So we went back a few days later and they had it in um, pom poms. Yeah. And Katie was like, "Here's Josephine, <laughs> or maybe Josie Love." <laughs> um, and so then my oldest daughter Grace fell in love with her and came back and changed all of our computer monitors to Josie Love's face. Um, she put you know, notes all over our refrigerator and our windows and our mirrors and our bathrooms of, you know, Josephine is supposed to be a Marinick. She just was bound and determined. So we started praying about that, really started praying for her another family because we felt like we were full. And Grace looked at me one day and I said, you know, Grace, Josephine is three and a half and she's not walking and she's not talking. And there's some significant delays. And, you know, we've got six kids. And the reality is I really do think that we need to pray for her, a family that can give her their undivided attention and was trying to really look at it logically and practically. And and Grace said, so if she was perfect and quote unquote normal mom, does that mean that you would adopt her? Yet you're worried, you know, that we couldn't do it. And so I sat there and it was I had a check in my spirit yeah. of okay, so maybe in my flesh I feel like we can't do it, but okay, God, what is it that you have? Not me, once again. Because you know it's real quick to you're real quick to revert back for to sure. for sure. So we ended up going and getting her. And when we got there we did a routine medical exam, and they told us that she was HIV positive and had malaria and tested positive oh for gosh. tuberculosis. Oh, my gosh. So, once again, we were at a crossroads, and um, she, but she laid across my lap with 105 fever. And at that point, we didn't even know if we could get her healthy enough to bring her home to get the medical care that she needed. Mm -hmm. And so we went back to Katie's house, and I got in the bed and cried for probably about eight hours straight. And Mike got online and started Googling and trying to figure out a way forward. And he got on a plane and came home and started putting addendums under our home study, met with infectious disease at Vanderbilt. What does it look like to have six kids and to bring a child home that their viral loads are through the roof? And we did the addendums on our home study, and we brought Josie Love home. And nine months later, she was walking and talking and calling everybody by name, and her viral loads were undetectable, and her TB was gone, and her malaria was gone, and she is a little beam of sunshine. Mm -hmm. Um, to know her is to love her, and she is truly um, just an example of Jesus Christ walking mm -hmm. on earth. So that's Josie Love's story. Mm -hmm. And then several years later, we were in Honduras serving as a family. And um, Mike, we met a we met a teenage girl. She was eighteen, oh, wow. and she had had grown up in the children's home in Honduras. And Mike started talking to her, and he said, "Well." You know, where are you going to go? And she said, well, I'm going to live with a friend. And he said, well, 
where's your friend live? Well, I'm not sure. You know, how are you going to eat? I'm not sure. So Mike really just felt like the Lord was telling him we need to help this young lady. And so that night, our family met together in our hotel room in Honduras, and Mike said, we really want to help. Your mom and I have talked, and we really want to help Tuta. First of all, we want to make sure that y'all are okay with it, that we all agree as a family this is something that we need to do. We want to pray about it. And if you guys have a piece about it, I want to know one thing that you're all willing to give up wow. um, to where the money that we would spend on that can go, can go towards helping her. I'll never forget it. We went around that whole hotel room and each one of my children list, yes, yes, please, we want to help Tuta. And here's something that I'm willing to give up so we can do that. And so we helped her from afar. We rented her a a hotel and made sure she had the food that she needed. And we um, enrolled her in a a university in Honduras. We did that for, I guess, a little over a year. And it got really dangerous. And there were a couple of times where we were worried about Mm -hmm. her safety. So we filled out the paperwork that we needed to fill out to get her to America. And she moved here, I guess, seven years ago and started at Lipscomb University. And she's actually going to be a college graduate in May. (laughs) Um, So she made number eight. Wow. Hey, friends, just taking a quick break to share with y'all about one of our amazing sponsors, Thistle Farms. Okay, so Lauren, real talk here. What are some of the things you've learned from the year that was 2020? Oh, man. I mean, I just think it taught me how to live with intention in so many ways, just like how I take care of myself, obviously remembering what's important and to look out for others, too. Um, but stuff that's always really mattered to me, we all of a sudden have a lot more space and time to be intentional about those things, you know? Yeah, that, I mean, that whole intentionality lesson makes me think about our friends at Thistle Farms. Have you heard of them? Oh my gosh, I love them so much. Um, and so many of my friends love Thistle Farms too. And we just, all of us absolutely rave about their work and their incredible products. Um, I was actually using some of their products in the bath last night. Oh, excellent. (laughs) How did you first hear about them? So I had some friends recommend their stuff too. Man, it's good to have friends who make sure to connect us with other friends that we need to know. And we want to do that for all of our friends listening. See, Thistle Farms provides healing, housing, and employment for women survivors of trafficking, prostitution, and addiction. They're based here in Nashville, but they have over 500 beds around the country through their amazing network. Yes, and the way they employ survivors while also funding their mission is by selling the beautiful lotions and scrubs, candles, essential oils that are all handmade by the women in their program. I love their lotions and I love their lip balms. So do my kids. But it's the endless candles that really get me. I mean, I'm like such a candle person. If you've been in my house, there are at least 20 already sitting out. But their scents are amazing. They're light and fresh and they just permeate our house with calming smells, which I can use a lot of lately. They make perfect gifts too. And I love knowing that while we're enjoying their amazing candles, our purchases are helping to continue the amazing redemptive work that is at Thistle Farms. Their products are incredible and the perfect way to live in love. By showing love for someone you care about or showing a bit of self-love and supporting these survivors too. Yes, and Thistle Farms has created a code just for our friends listening. If you use the code Live in Love, you get 15% off at thistlefarms.org. Again, that's thistlefarms.org and use the code Live in Love for 15% off.
I love introducing Suzanne to my friends. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I just, I, I hear, uh, I mean, obviously I've heard mom's story my whole life, but hearing both of these stories, it never gets old to me. I feel like I constantly, I still get choked up just thinking about just the beauty in all of it. And then now getting to experience it myself with Willa Gray is like just what Suzanne said. I feel like walking through adoption and being a product of an adopted family, a healthy product of an adopted family, you can't experience, in my opinion, you can't experience all of that and and go through all of it without Jesus and without knowing Jesus and following whatever is the next step in your life. But just being open to what he has for you, because there are moments in our adoption that I felt like the doors were just slammed shut in front of us. And, and I didn't think I was going to make it through. And there were days that I was really angry at the situation I was in. And I remember texting my girlfriends every single prayer request. And even if it was just like, I'm really, I feel really defeated today, like to the point where I remember one day texting my girlfriend saying, I don't, I don't even have the strength or the want to get on my knees and pray. Like I'm so defeated and I'm angry and I feel hopeless. And what kind um, of things were going wrong? It was a lot. <laughs> I So when we started our adoption process with Willa Gray, we didn't have any kids. Willa Gray is our first. Well, through the adoption, I got pregnant. Yay. <laughs> and Ada James, is, who, is, she's the one I was pregnant with. I cannot imagine life without her being as close in age to Willa Gray mm-hmm. as she is. Mm-hmm. But in the moment, getting pregnant with her was very, very hard for me. I am horribly sick through my pregnancies. And being in Uganda, being really, really sick and traveling in a car on dirt roads mm-hmm. to meet with officials and try to get this paperwork through and, and doing it in the right way, I think should be emphasized because I think there are temptations to where you can slide somebody a hundred or mm-hmm. do these things to try to make things go through. And in those moments, I was like, what can we do to make this work out? <laughs> but every time I would be like, that's not the way that it is. I have to trust that the Lord is going to pull us through this because he promised me that he would. Mm-hmm. Thomas Rhett was touring And so he wasn't able to be with me through most of it. And so my marriage was in shambles. Mm -hmm. I didn't like my husband. Mm -hmm. I didn't like myself. I didn't like the body I was in. I didn't like anybody in Uganda on the official side of things because I felt like everybody was just telling us, no, no, you can't do this. Or, oh, it's going to take six more weeks. Or, yeah, come back tomorrow. And then we would go back tomorrow and they'd be like, oh, we lost the paperwork. Can you get it again? And it was just like, what am I doing here? And watching my child, I wanted so badly to be in my home with my family, with my husband, with my child. And it just wasn't working. (laughs) It was a little over a year, the process. And I will never forget the moment, A, that I had to leave Willa Gray because I got so pregnant that my doctor was like, you really have to come home because you really shouldn't be traveling anymore. And the flight to Uganda home is what, like 24 hours on a plane mm-hmm. total. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you're doing all the connections, Gosh. going into my third trimester, flying home, being so sick. It was just a lot at once. And not to mention my marriage was not in a good place. So I left Willa Gray with my mom and my dad. My mom had been with me when Thomas Rhett couldn't come over. And that was such a gift. But then when I had to go back home, 
I didn't want mom to be there alone. So dad flew over to be with her. And it was a week later that she got to come home. And um, so y'all brought her home. So mom and dad brought Willa Gray home. And honestly, it was really hard for me (laughs) to swallow that pill because I was like, well, she had done all the work. She had done all (laughs) of the work. I just wanted to get to to bring my baby home. But looking back, I realized now that I was able to come home. I was able to kind of have a week Mm -hmm. to, first of all, get over jet lag, being really pregnant. (laughs) Secondly, I was able to just enjoy being at my home before chaos hit. And then it was like time where Thomas Rhett and I got to kind of try to work through some of this before we had kids in the house. Um, And we started to work through some of the things. So we went through some intense counseling after that, but it was good. Like, I think the the Lord obviously knew that I needed a little, just a little bit of a break before everything, because the second she came home, we were in the public spotlight and, you know, People Magazine was wanting to do a, a spread on our family and Willa Gray coming home and everyone wanted to meet her. And if you know us, you know that we roll with 20, at least just with our family. <laughs> and then you add close friends to that mix and the number just shoots yeah. into the air. So it was it was a lot when she came home, but it was, I can't even explain to you when, when she, when she came home, it was like everything that I went through and everything we went through as a family, mom included, Thomas Rhett, our close friends and family, as hard as it was, it was beyond worth it because I have this angel. I'm honestly still not convinced that she's not an angel. (laughs) Um, I tell her that every day because my life without Willa Gray I really believe would be very different because because of her little life. And also I heard the Lord speak to me about adopting. And when he told me that that's what he had for my family and for my marriage and for my faith and for the world to see, because we do have so many eyes watching us, he told me and and the things the things that we were so worried about after he had told us this is what he wanted us to do, he verbatim listed back in order the concerns that Thomas Rhett and I had um, and said, I'm going to take care of all of this. Whatever you're worried about, you got to just let me take it. But you have to trust me that this is what I'm asking you to do. And I need you to say yes. And so that's what I clung to. The whole adoption was like, I, I'm trusting that he promised me that he's going to take care of all the th- all the hurdles that are being put in front of us, all the doors that were slammed shut, all the voices that were telling us this wasn't a good idea or it wasn't going to go through or casting doubt into our life. It, he he told me he was going to take care of all of that, and he did. That's not to say it wasn't really hard, but he took care of it, and that's what I held on to. But he gave me the people in my life. Suzanne had just had just you know walked through it four other times. Mm-hmm. And she was got to be in Uganda with me some, just with um, the work that she does. And then with my mom, who is like also not convinced that she's not an angel, was with me, helping me with Willa Gray. And I had people speaking truth into my life. And that is such a huge, I know we talk about that a lot, but speaking truth into my life is what I think everybody has to have a community that knows truth and speaks mm-hmm. that into you. Mm-hmm. Because if I didn't have that, I would have crumbled. So I think he gave me my community. That was also a lifeline that he provided for me or the people around me to hold me up and pray for me when I didn't want to or feel like I couldn't pray or um, encourage me when I felt hopeless 
or mom to physically take care of Willa Gray while I was throwing up in the bathroom. I mean, it was just looking back on it. It was one of the hardest moments in my life, but I wouldn't be who I was because I learned so much about God in that moment. And I've never been closer to Jesus than I was then. And, And since then, I have wanted nothing more than to chase back, not the darkness I was in, but to be that close to Jesus always. Mm. Like, I know one thing for sure, whatever I face in my life, I want Jesus to be right there with me. Like, if I don't have the Holy Spirit right there with me, I'm going to lose. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the biggest lessons I learned through Willa Gray coming home is that I can't do this life without him. And he has designed our family in a really sweet way. We've got three, you know, Willa Gray's five. Ada James is three and Lennon turned one in February. And our life is pretty chaotic, but it's so sweet and I wouldn't change it for the world. And I also want to adopt again. You know, I think it's once you've done it and you see the joy and the life that it brings to your family and the people around you, it's, it's like having a baby. I mean, for the most part, I'm sure there are some people who have a baby that are like, yep, don't want to do that again. But for the most part... <laughs> I was the opposite. I had really awful pregnancies and labor and deliveries, but oh my goodness, having a baby is just like, it's like, it's like a drug Mm -hmm. that you just, you want, you, you just want babies. And it was the same thing with Willa Gray. It was so hard. It was so hard going through it, but now we have Willa Gray. Mm -hmm. And so I like to think that we'll be able to adopt again. And I hope that I am able to get pregnant again also. I would be really sad if I couldn't do both of those things again, Mm -hmm. because they, as hard as they were to go through, they brought so much joy to my life and purpose to my life and has just taught me so much about the heart of Jesus that I want to just keep going through it again. (laughs) Lisa, I'd like you zoom out of this story. I mean, you're Mimi adopted you Mm -hmm. and then you bring your daughter's adopted child to her. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was, it was, it was so hard. I just, I don't see how Lauren honestly continued and went through everything that she went through. Suzanne, I mean, I know was coaching her and encouraging her and keeping her going. But just when I got to meet Sweet Willa for the first time, your heart just, she just melts your heart and she just soaks into your soul and She's it was just it was amazing to get to do all of that and go over and see her and and help with bringing her home. But she was so good and and she has got energy. Mm -hmm. She is like um, Mammy, Thomas Rhett's grandmother, (laughs) says she's like a worm in hot coals. Just never stops moving. She never a worm stops. worm in hot coals. That is such a sweet thing. And she she is. She spent the night this last weekend. And I mean, we all slept in the bed together yeah. and she was all over the place. But on the airplane bringing her home, I could see people looking at me like, I cannot believe that you have that child mm, in this, this area point. on this 22 hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I just prayed. I was just praying. Jesus, please let her be good. Please let her just fall asleep. She she was better than everyone else on the whole entire plane. <laughs> of I'm course not she kidding. was. She was so good. And it was just wonderful to get to be part of that. And I don't know, just the whole coming about and, you know, that I was adopted and then Lauren got to do that. And then and then I got to 
bring her home to her home, you know, forever home. It was just, it was wonderful. Such a blessing. What does Mimi think about Willa Gray? Oh, my word. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Mimi's not allowed to say this, so I'll just say it for her. I think... That Willa Gray might be her favorite out of all the grandkids and great grandkids. <laughs> oh my gosh, both generations. Both generations. <laughs> Willa Gray just skipped everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like, and, and maybe that's because she's watching her story with mom lived out again in her yeah, family and she's yeah. getting to see the beauty in it and get to experience it all over again. Because Mimi has mom and she didn't get to do it again. So I think in Mimi's eyes, she made me a scrapbook of Willa Gray coming home, oh, yeah. like texts, oh, pictures, yeah. stories she remembers us telling her as the whole thing. And she documented the whole thing as it was happening. Like she was so invested in Willa Gray. And I know it's because she has an, a heart of an adoptive mom. Mm-hmm. And so walking through that with me and getting to be Willa Gray's great grandmother, it just it's like full circle and. And sh- that is her proudest title is Willa Gray's great grandmother. One hundred percent. Oh, so precious. Suzanne, does that happen a lot? Where kids raised in adoption, raised around adoption, make that part of their story as they as they become an adult. One hundred percent. Most of my biolog- Oh, I think all of my biological children would say, oh, yeah, they, they want to adopt. Mm-hmm. You know, what? hearing her talk about the how hard the journey was, I think that's one thing. There's a misconception um, that when people are adopting, it's hard. Like, you don't just go out and adopt a child right. or just go bring them home. It is a rigorous, exhausting journey, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And I, one of the things that I kept trying to tell Lauren is, these are your birthing pains, when you can't get this wow. done and you can't d- get that done, if she hadn't had all of those obstacles to jump through to be to bring Willa Gray home, and they just handed her this child, she might go, "Okay, what do I do now?" But she f- had to fight for her, and in that fighting, Willa Gray became hers. So then, once she was able to hold her at home, okay, she's mine. Mm-hmm. I have battled for her for months and months and months. This child is mine. I don't know anybody that has an adoption journey that's just seamless. And so in that journey, those babies become yours. And I just think that's God's way. That's the way he ordains it all to come together. So truly, when you get them in your arms, you go, oh, yeah, this child is mine. Mm -hmm. Because you fought so hard for them. It's so good. It's sweet. So true. Okay, so Lauren, when you hear Suzanne say that, that adoption is hard, what's been hard about this for you, particularly with Willa Gray being from Africa? I think that's a huge part of what people struggle with, especially as white. And the reverse. I have a girlfriend who just recently adopted, and she is a black woman who adopted a white baby. And so I think that those fears, no matter which way you look at it, it feels scary. Because it is different, right, Mm -hmm. Suzanne? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is different when you... Because here's the thing. When mom was walking through the grocery store with Mimi growing up, people didn't take a second look. They were like, oh, there's a white kid. I mean, people thought you had her jeans. With a white mom. Yeah, right, right. Right. But when Suzanne walks through the grocery store with her kids or when I walk through the grocery store with Willa Gray, we do get looked at. And people are like, what? What's going on here? And I will say my experience is, I'll speak for you here, but my experience is different than Suzanne's in the way that I think that 
the way our family looks is widely, for the most part, accepted now. I think when she was going through it, it was a little bit different. Now you see it more often, and so it's not as crazy. But when Suzanne was going through it, it was a different experience, and I would say a lot harder. I would say the difference with me now is that I have a platform where millions of people can give their opinion on my life. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard for me because I think it's easy for us to see the negative comments Mm -hmm. and remember those instead of the ones that are, which is 95% of them, really positive and encouraging and loving. But it it is very different. And that is something that I think I struggle with on a daily basis. And I know my girlfriend who is a black mom to a white baby is struggling with now. And so it's been really cool for us as we're going through this process together to be able to encourage each other. And I'll never forget when she texted me that she had fostered this little girl. And when it was official, she sent me a photo of her and she sent me a picture and she was like, it's official. I'm a mom. And she was so excited. And I was like, how are you? And she said, I'm not going to lie. Raising a white kid makes me a little bit nervous. She was like, (laughs) I'm kind of freaking out that I have a white baby. And like, am I going to be good enough? Those are the same fears that I have growing up. Just like what happens when Willa Gray gets a little bit older and she starts asking different questions or I mean, she's she's five. She obviously knows that there is a difference in her skin color and my skin color. But right now, it's like she's so proud of it, and and we have raised her to be very proud of who she is and where she's come from. And that's her favorite fun fact to tell everybody is, I'm from Africa. (laughs) I'm from Uganda. But there are going to be moments in her life, I'm sure, that it will be easy or tempting for her to feel insecure because she's different in our family. Mm. And I just hope and pray that the people we surround her with in our life and the people who speak into my life personally are people who are going to encourage our family in this journey and trust that this is what the Lord has for us and and that Willa Gray is ours and that we are Willa Grays. And at the end of the day, that's what it comes back to. I mean, that's not to say that Ada James isn't going to grow up and have struggles as well, but Willa Grays are going to be very different. And that's something that I think as a mom, you're constantly navigating and you do have more eyeballs watching because it is a little bit different. And some people don't agree with it. Do you want to say anything? Or they think you're a church group. (laughs) (laughs) You're like toting around a youth group in your van. Every time we go to the beach, people ask us, are y'all a church group? Mm. I think it, it goes back to once again, being intentional about prayer and just ask the Lord to bring just the right people in your children's life, whether they're white or black or purple, green or yellow. As parents, we all need other people in our children's lives speaking into them, discipling them and mentoring them. Mm-hmm. So for my my young black sons, my prayer is that I can have some good, strong, godly black men that can speak into their heart and soul. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that Mike's not adequate, but Mike needs some help in that. Same thing with our biological children. I just... And, and I, I do think God provides that. I've seen it firsthand with all of my children. I mean, we're a prime example of that. I mean, Lisa and I are, I just call her the life giver. Mm-hmm. Um, but God put me in Lauren's life to mentor her through parenting a black child. But then she has Lisa 
to parent her just of, about what it feels like to be adopted. Mm-hmm. So God does his thing. You just have to hold under the reins and ride yeah. <laughs> right the so way. Okay, so at the end of every conversation, we ask the same question. So, Suzanne, what does it look like for you and your family to live in love in adoption? For me, I think it's just day by day. We talk about this all the time, Lauren, just loving the one that's in front of you in that present moment, whether it's your child or the person on the corner selling the newspaper or your husband when he comes in tired from work. It's moment by moment, day by day, who's standing you in front of you in that moment, and um, how can you love that person well? Mm. I love that. Mom, what does it look like? for you to each day live in love in adoption? Well, it's just pretty perfect because (laughs) I keep saying that, but um, my adoption was, my adoption parents are so wonderful. And um, I had the greatest life with my parents and I don't know, they just, love was always in our family and, and, and it always has been, um, I had the greatest parents and knowing that you have done that and can keep passing that on and that we got to be part of that with Willa Gray has just been the the best blessing ever. She's she brings so much joy to everybody and and she possibly is a little angel on earth. She is. Mm, <laughs> she is. Love is everything. Uh, adoption is everything in our world, but love is just everything. If you don't have love, I don't think anything else can be so. Well, and our families look the way they do with adoption because of love. And if you know Lisa, you understand why Lauren is as amazing as she is Mm -hmm. because Lisa is one of the most life-giving, loving people I've ever met (laughs) in my life. I love you, It's true. It's true. Lauren is truly a product of her mother. Okay, so Lauren, as I always do. It's your turn. What does it look like for you to live in love and adoption? I think adoption has become one of the themes of our family in the same way love is a theme of our family. And so to me, they do just go hand in hand. It has grown more love in our family through Mm -hmm. adoption. And I also have seen that fruit with the the love that has touched other families and other people, and even people I've never met before. I've heard stories of our loving Willa Gray and, and Willa Gray loving us back in the world, getting to see that mm-hmm. has changed lives in the same way that if my grandmother had not adopted my mom, I might not be here today, and these conversations might not be happening today. And my mom wouldn't have had the life that she had if my grandparents had not adopted her. And then with Suzanne, if she had not adopted her for adopted kids, Suzanne would not be the Suzanne that she is. And I think living in adoption is one of the greatest ways that we can make the name of Jesus greater. Mm. Because I believe, I'll say this again, but throughout our adoption stories, the heart of Jesus is just threaded through that whole thing. And mm. to me, that is just the most important part of it all and the fun of it all. So it's, it's a huge part of our life, and I'm so grateful that it is. <laughs> Thank y'all so much for listening. I love getting to share these conversations with you. And if you love this episode, please rate it, review it, and share it with your friends. 
And just a reminder, you can pick up your copy of the paperback edition of Live in Love that's available now. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Live in Love podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to live in love in family.